Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon, and my show, as always, is called The Stories We Live By. Uh, I haven't done a show in a while. Uh, I'm a complicated set of reasons. I was uh, uh, fighting with my uh, uh, server, and it's taken me <laughs> weeks to figure out how to get a show back on the air. And I won't go into the details of that because they have nothing to do with today's program. And I'm talking to you today from very cold Florida. I've been here 13 years, and I can't remember the time, maybe once, uh, that the temperature this morning dropped to 40 degrees with a stiff wind. Uh, so it was uh, unusual. But tomorrow should be back to something uh, more uh, spring-like or fall-like uh, for winter uh, and, and I'll be glad about that. Today's topic is called Entrap- Escaping the Traps in Mental Health Stories. I don't give advice in my books or in this show, but I do feel an obligation to go around uh, uh, the usual arguments I make um, about mental health, mental illness, uh, and the myths that are involved in it. Uh, and talk to people who are in or considering psychotherapy. Uh, I spent uh, 50 years of my life uh, doing what was called psychotherapy and knowing many, many other people who did psychotherapy and people who had benefited from psychotherapy. Psychotherapy, as I will argue in this uh, short show, is more of an educational process than anything else but and can be incredibly liberated liberating for those who are suffering from uh, um, misunderstandings of themselves who are not really understanding their own psychology which is not easy to do Uh, who don't have certain facts and arguments at their disposal. When psychotherapy does what I believe it should do, again, it helps enormously. The problem is that the very words mental health and mental illness are entrapments that do enormous damage. And instead of liberating people, entrap them, Uh, and convince them of certain things that are not true and therefore uh, impede whatever good changes and good uh, uh, learning and good uh, 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 developments that might take place that would liberate and empower an individual or individuals to change how they live to something I believe and they would believe to be more productive, loving, creative, and as I always keep saying, democratic, because that's part of the key to this. Now, I want to give you the short reason why mental illness and disorders are a corrupt term. They're not true. Because function of this show is to say to somebody who is in therapy or going to therapy, you have to walk in armed 
with an argument and an understanding that allows you as an equal of the therapist, not necessarily of what they know or you know, but equal to be able to work through the early stages of a relationship, make it democratic, make it humanistic, and avoid being trapped by a variety of, of, of untruths and, and confusions, but especially the notion that you are mentally ill or disordered. Right? If you can't do that, if you're unable or unwilling to do that, if you simply accept that you are mentally ill, that you're disordered, that you're damaged, and blindly then uh, uh, go on with the pres being prescribed increasingly in, in, in the field itself, uh, the long-term use <coughs> of drugs that are not medicines, because if there's no such actual thing as a mental illness, then these are not medicines, they're just drugs, real medicines treat real illnesses. Right? Antibiotic treats a real illness called strep throat. And antacid drugs really will treat and allow the healing of a real illness, a real problem called an ulcer. Right? And I can give more examples of that. So this is a, 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 an attempt to empower an individual to create a relationship with somebody called a psychotherapist. And I'll talk at the end, maybe there's a better word for it, but I haven't discovered it. Um, to work with somebody and as a result, learn, develop insights, learn new skills, unleash new motivations so that life can be what the individual wants it to be without suffering and then creating sufferings of their own on top of the early the problems they're trying to solve and escape from and the difficulties they're trying to escape from. Right? No one I know, I don't believe it's ever happened, has been given the diagnosis, and hundreds and hundreds of them now, of, of having a disorder, a mental illness or a disorder, based on any medical evidence. There's no tests for it. The judgment that a person is mentally ill is based upon a description of how they think, how they feel, and how they're behaving. So an individual who is, let's say, feeling sad and hopeless and without energy, and can't think straight, and all they want to do is lie in bed and, and even wish for death and maybe even think about dying, will be given a mental illness, depression. Illness called depression, the major depressive disorder, and in most cases, drugs will be prescribed. And the justification for the drugs on one level are they make you feel better, and the other is, recently, in the last 15, 20 years, that the cause of not wanting to get out of bed and not being, finding a way to live and wanting to die is because of a chemical imbalance in the brain. There are no tests for it. 
Any of you listening, now or in the future, ask what radiological, chemical analysis, what was blood in your blood, what could be shown to be a chemical imbalance? What are the parameters of a imbalance? What is the normal balance that would show, uh, uh, would be correlated with not being depressed? What represents the deviance? But that's not even what I want to argue with today. It doesn't exist. But what if it does exist? And here's the crux of my argument. If, in fact, a chemical imbalance is responsible for all or even much of the behavior and the feelings of hopelessness and helplessness and self-hatred and, 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 and unwillingness or inability to eat right and get out of bed and go to work and, 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 and make love and have relationships, if all of that is the result of a physical problem in the brain, a measurable problem in the brain, then it's not a mental illness. It's not a mental illness. It's an ordinary medical illness, and it should not be treated. Not be treated by somebody who doesn't have a medical degree, right? And it should not be treated with drugs unless it can be demonstrated that the imbalance exists and that taking the drugs will re-change the imbalance. Neither can be measured. And if they can be, then you were successfully treated and didn't need to talk about it or talk about your life or the pain in your life or the assaults on your dignity or the injustices or the punishments that led to the feeling of hopelessness and helplessness and not wanting to live anymore. All of the behaviors I have worked with in my 50 years as a therapist no longer do it. And one way I miss it terribly and another, I'm relieved because I don't have to earn my living by filling out insurance forms, diagnosing somebody with something that is not an illness. It's just calling them a name. It's just calling them, making a moral judgment that their behavior is unwanted, unacceptable, maybe to themselves, maybe to other people. It's unwanted, shouldn't feel this way, shouldn't think this way, shouldn't behave this way. Right? And therefore, it's a trap. So that when somebody goes for therapy, one of the things they need to negotiate if they accept that they're going to explore, and often this is what happens if you don't get involved with the drugs, but you really try to talk through things, is a reexamination of your history, an understanding of some of the things you may have come to believe that I'll discuss in a moment, that... As a child, you wouldn't have believed necessarily as an adult. Right? An understanding of what was done, what was happening. And maybe nobody even meant it to happen. Maybe the people who, who, who punished or, 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 or didn't believe was part of their background. They're trapped 
because not mental the issue of being mentally ill is not the only trap. There are all kinds of others, and I want to do talk about three or four more before I get off the air, all right, and prepare myself for cocktail hour tonight. Okay. Cold night, have a barbecue, even in the cold. Okay. So, I could give hundreds of examples. I'll give one more of a very depressed individual who ultimately had what we call a breakdown, which is not a breakdown. It was an attempt to escape, to find relief for an unbearable pain. For them, that was unbearable. Somebody else, it might not have been unbearable, but for them. And this was a woman who had been raised in, and I wrote about this in my book, by the way, The Stories We Live By, and and I am pushing the book today because I think uh, it's written for, not professionals. I've given up trying to convince professionals of this because even those who believe what I'm saying, right, as long as they have to sign insurance forms, are economically trapped and very often suffer guilt and are very unhappy about making these diagnoses and try to make the, the least pernicious, ugly diagnosis like depression, uh, a major de, uh, adjustment disorder. What the hell does that actually mean? Right? You can't adjust to the situation. Maybe the situation couldn't be adjusted to by anybody. You have to put things in context, but that's another story. Everything could be understood in context, like the patient I want to talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. Had an abusive father. There were six or seven children in the family. He beat them all unmercifully. When she was a young woman, she couldn't stand the screams of her mother and her siblings being beaten by this man. She believed there was no real escape, but she ran away, went to a big city, really had very little education, was picked up by a guy she didn't know at the time (coughs) was a pimp, and she ended up being sold and and being trafficked, worked for a while in prostitution, where she was further abused. And finally became more and more depressed and hopeless and filled with self-hatred at what she was doing. And always, because children and young people very often do this, blamed herself solely for what she believed she was doing wrong. And finally developed AIDS. This goes back into the late 70s, early 80s, before before the uh, medicines... (coughs) to control HIV, to control AIDS. And as she stood one night all alone on a street corner, praying to God to take her because she couldn't live with the pain, the loneliness, the degradation, facing death by herself as a victim, the mother of God appeared before her an angel that announced it was Mary, the mother of God, and motioned her to follow. And she did, right onto the East River Drive in New York, where she was hit by a car. 
I saw her several months after she was made an outpatient at the mental hospital in Queens, Creedmoor, which my clinic uh, uh, became the outpatient for, uh, that mental hospital. And she said the months she had been in the hospital were the best in her life. Nobody beat her. She was fed. She was warm. She even made friends. But she was going to die. And we discussed all of this. This moment called psychosis. She was diagnosed as major depressive disorder with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. Something wrong with her, it says. To me, and ultimately to her, was something she understood to be such an act of mental desperation to get out of the situation that she was in. And I'm not sure that she didn't, in her own unconscious mind, guide Mary onto the East River Drive, that thought of this much later, in an attempt to commit suicide. Okay? Uh, incidental to the argument. Everyone I've ever worked with who has had been given a diagnosis for serious mental illness has tried to get out of certain desperate situations but couldn't find a way and manufactured a solution that was unwanted, unacceptable, either to themselves and or others, and in many ways made the situation worse. So when I say there's no such thing as mental illness or mental disorders, I'm not saying that behaviors that are hard to understand, unless you conjure up and work through an explanation that makes them more understandable, that they don't exist. But if they are the result of abnormalities in the brain, then I shouldn't be treating them. And the 95% of all the so-called mental disorders in the world are being treated by non-medical personnel. That shouldn't happen. And the evidence of the treatment using drugs or something else, so the medical treatment, called the medical treatment, should only be predicated on a diagnosis of what specific physical problem accounts for the unwanted behavior, that they are truly symptoms of illness. Okay? I wish somebody would call me. I'm going to set up another show sometime. Let people call in who have heard this and argue with me. Most people don't argue. What they do, like Thomas Zass, who wrote The Myth of Mental Illness, the book that changed my thinking back in the 1970s, made me aware of this problem that I had in trying to avoid making diagnoses and yet at the same time would be be unable to earn a living. Um, Argue with the facts. Instead, he was called crazy. When I presented this, I was called crazy. Sometimes by friends who were merely sympathetic and sometimes people who weren't friends who tried to hurt and have me undone professionally. Happens to anybody who stands up and tells the truth as they see it and finds themselves talking to giving truth to power where there is deep vested interest 
in promoting these ideas. So, what is implied and what are some of the other traps and I want to talk about? Number one, and these are more general and need to be understood for themselves because it's not merely in this type of situation uh, that these traps exist, but they are thought traps, language traps. One is the failure to differentiate between judging and describing something. To call somebody crazy or mentally ill is to make a judgment. Somebody cuts me off on the road and I say, schmuck. This gets us into a trap. I have no idea why that person cut me off. I don't know what they were experiencing in the car. I don't know if they were on some kind of drug, legal or otherwise. I don't know if they were talking on the telephone. I don't know. And because I don't know, I judge them to be a schmuck. A judgment, unlike a description, is a statement that establishes value or worth. It says that something is either wonderful or something is wrong. There are positive judgments. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he was a genius. I don't know how he wrote Beethoven's Ninth. I don't know how he wrote that symphony. I had a friend who was a composer who said to me, a good composer thinks in music. You write a book because you think in words. I think in music. I write what I hear in my mind. Down on paper, it's now a composition. But calling him a genius is a judgment. It's positive to be a genius. It doesn't explain anything. So that when you as an individual or any of us make a judgment, I'm a crazy person, I'm sick, I'm mentally ill, And that's the most pernicious judgment because what it is, it hides itself to sound like it is a medical description of something. It doesn't explain anything. All it does is create a trap. And then to be told that this is an incurable illness, can't be diagnosed, we know it's there, it's it's, it's curable, is to say you're defective, you're mentally emotionally, morally defective, and you have to learn to live this way. And in my book, I describe some of the cases that upset me the most by people who were trapped by the belief in this so that they could not escape from the the therapists who should have been helping liberate them from the pain of their lives to the degree that they have added to that pain by these defenses, by the stories they have created that only made the original problem worse. So it's important to learn to understand when you are describing yourself and when you're judging yourself. I'm no good judgment. I get angry and yell at people more than I should description, which leads to the second issue. When you judge yourself and the judgment becomes a core of your identity, I am no good, I shouldn't have been born. And again, all of these terms, all of these terms were just embedded in the thinking process of people that I work with over the years. And you can't say to somebody who 
is, uh, uh, feels that they're not a good human being. That is, their identity is tainted and ruined by the idea that they're permanently immoral. You can't say to them, but you are a good person. Look at all the good that you can do. doesn't work. This stuff that came out of their parents' mouths, their, their priest's mouth or their rabbi's mouth, or some other cleric's mouth, or from a teacher. You're just too stupid to learn. When they're internalized, what you are is not the same as what you do. So when I say the following, I get a lot of fights. There are no good people and there are no bad people. All of us, are capable of doing things that can be judged to be good and things that could be judged to be bad. I cannot change the fact that I'm a male and I can't change the fact and wouldn't want to change the fact that I'm an American and I can't change the fact and wouldn't change the fact that I'm Jewish and I can't change a number of facts, but I can change, and so can you, my listener, what you do. And to understand that bad behavior is a judgment of the behavior, and one must ask who makes the judgment, because sometimes what turned out to be, in some body's view, a very wicked, bad behavior might, in some other set of judgments, be it's a perfectly acceptable or good behavior. Right? won't go into a lot of examples of that, but that happens all the time. You can say, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that again. Not easy to change behavior, but it's impossible to change something that you believe is at the core of your identity and that it's permanent and that you're disabled by it. Okay? I argue in my book that... Good psychotherapy, and most of the people I knew, and I think I was a good psychotherapist, are also teachers. There are many different therapeutic techniques that help an individual teach and an individual learn a different way of thinking about their thinking, not only analyze the content of their memories and their experiences, but the structure of how they think. Are they judging what they're describing? Okay. Uh, are they thinking about something that is uh, a permanent defect in character or a behavior that if they can find a way and learn new skills, which is why education is such an important thing for me. Uh, I, I taught for all the years, or almost all the years, that I, I uh, did therapy. I split my career between being a, a professor and being a psychotherapist. And as I say in my book, and I say in many areas, I help more people by teaching. Okay? Because if you want to be a person, wants to be a responsible human being, they have to understand the situation that demands the responsibility and whether or not they have the skills to be responsible. 
When you leave it as a moral judgment, it leaves out the nature of the context in which one must be responsible. A six-year-old steals his father's car and crashes it. It's very different than an adult running away from a cop who crashes it. Very different. A kid learns how to turn on the car by watching his father. He doesn't know how to drive the car. He's not had a lesson. Crashing it is almost inevitable. And so we make a moral judgment about that in a very different way than the person who robbed the bank and is running and shooting at the police as he crashes the car. Very different context. One, we say, should know better. The other one doesn't know better. So for me, the goal of good psychotherapy is to help an individual learn new skills develop understanding, and my goal in my book, and now I argue, I don't even think I went far enough in the book, so I'm doing a revision. I'm not even sure whether I have the time, the money, the inclination to ever publish this particular uh, revision, is to change the very language. In my book, I put quotes around therapy. I believe we have to put quotes around patient, treatment, therapy, because these are all medical terms. Okay? The, the idea of a student means that I'm a teacher, but as a teacher, I had a different role than as a therapist, even though much of my life I integrated what I learned about good therapy into my teaching, and what I learned as a professor teaching into my work <laughs> with so-called patients. Put patients in quotes. You're not a patient. I'm not a medical doctor, and if I talk with you or you talk with someone like me and you examine your thoughts and your beliefs and the structure of how you reason and, and the events in your life that were bearable and unbearable and the opportunities you had and the opportunities you didn't have, right? and you make plans to change relationships, to a add ideas, I tell everybody I know, read, read good literature, read some philosophy. If you don't read well, go back to school and learn. Best place in the world, school, right? as long as it's not particularly authoritarian and it isn't operating in some damaging way to judge, which very often does happen. But that's another story and that's another show. Uh so I don't know the word, right? Uh, I, client, well, attorneys have clients. They give advice. Good therapist never gives advice. A teacher-student, no. Teachers have to grade. And the last thing a good therapist ever does, consciously or unconsciously, is grade the success or failure of what a patient learned when the therapy was either successful or you, you, you got an A in therapy. No, you're leaving before you're ready to leave. You didn't learn what I wanted you to learn. You have an F, right? Not the same. So I don't have the words for it. So at this point, I keep things in quotes, but try to explain why the quotes exist, that what I did had very little to do with medicine, even if there were consequences that were medical in nature. 
Right? When people learn some of the confusions uh, and, and, and some of the ideas that allow them to stop taking serious drugs or stop ruining their relationships, when they start figuring out a way that life that's better and more creative for them, right? when they're happier, right? not medical. It's important. It's describable. It's understandable. But it's not medical. So I'm getting tired. This morning, I did something I'm really proud of. I went to a local college. Uh, I had signed up, and I uh, spent the morning in the freezing cold and wind. Not freezing, but for me, after 13 years (laughs) in the hot box here, uh, signing people up to vote. And I did, five, six people. Hopefully now we'll vote. And I didn't tell them who to vote. That's not allowed by law. But vote you must. I don't think you could be mentally healthy unless you vote, unless you understand the relationship that exists, not only between yourself and yourself, yourself and your family, yourself and your friends, yourself and your immediate community, but the larger world and the country you live in. And I've just been watching the impeachment hearings. And if our democracy succeeds, Adam Schiff will have much to do with it, I think. So, dear friends, um, I don't see anybody calling in. Uh, I didn't expect to. I did this on very short notice, and I didn't set up anybody, but I hadn't done this in a while, and I finally figured out how to get myself back on the air. And so I'm going to end the episode. Wish everybody well. Uh, Everybody, uh, good mental health. Uh, If there's no such thing as mental illness, by the way, there's no such thing as mental health. That means it's wanted behavior. It's behavior that an individual or those around him and or those around him want the behavior to be. Mm, Goodbye. Good evening. Have a nice time.